0: Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're excited to be hosting the .NET Developer Days conference in Warsaw, Poland, October 23rd through
1: the 25th. .NET Developer Days is one of the largest events in Central and Eastern Europe dedicated to application development on the .NET platform.
0: We'll be recording a number of .NET Rocks episodes from the conference. Plus, we'll be hanging out with you. So register today at net.developerdays.pl. And we'll see you there. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And, uh, man, it's just getting warm over here in Connecticut now. Just getting warm. I don't understand. It's late, been a long, Late spring for you? Yeah, it's been a late spring. Yeah, well, that happens. How's the, uh, how's the coastal Vancouver... Coastal living
1: doesn't suck, my friend. You know, yeah. sitting on the ocean every day, writing has been very enjoyable. Of course, the conference season is upon us, so this is going to stop for a while, but... Uh, so, my
0: doctor convinced my wife to eat the first oyster she's ever eaten yesterday. And now, that
1: takes some convincing. Like, the first person to ever eat an oyster was taking a flyer.
0: Right. Now, this is – she's 51 years old. I'm sorry, Kelly, mm-hmm. but, you know, she had never lived, grew up in Mystic, Connecticut. Like, you know – Seafood country. Stonington, seafood country. Like, this is where all the stuff comes from. And, um, you know, we're sitting out and and – by the water at a beautiful restaurant in westbrook connecticut and uh and and she's like oh that's disgusting he says how much would i have to pay you for you to eat an oyster (laughs) she says ten thousand dollars he says how about 50 bucks she says okay (laughs) (laughs) and we have video of her choking down an oyster took her three times three tries I was like, damn, you mean all I got to do is offer her 50 bucks for, you know, stuff she doesn't want to do and that's it? Man, you got magic, magic, mad skills. Anyway, so I got something very cool and very appropriate for today's show for Better Know Framework. So roll the crazy music. Awesome.
2: All
0: right, dude, what do you got? Man, that music really is crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. But if we ever changed it, we'd get crucified.
1: Oh no, people love it, and uh, and I know it. I know in some ways it annoys you that some of the silliest things you've ever done.
0: Well, you know, popular is there. yeah, earworms are earworms. What are you going to do? Okay, yeah. what are you going to do? So um, this is an article that came out in May, like mm-hmm. May fifth of this year. So it must be a pretty new feature, pretty current. Yeah, but I don't know exactly when it was introduced. So this is uh, immutable storage for Azure blob storage. Wow. Right? So with blob storage, you know, you can write two blobs. And if you write a blob that already exists, it overwrites the existing blob. So you can update it and you can delete them and all that stuff. So with this uh, policy in place, and you just do it in the portal, it's very simple. Or, of course, you know, in the in the um, manager you you just basically can write and read, but you can't modify or delete. Interesting, and so that's really cool because you know if you have like financial institutions that are uh, medical records, things that can only be appended, you know that sort of um, data source idea.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, then uh, then you can do it, and it's pretty easy. I. I set it up, I set the policy, and there's two ways that you can do it. You can use a time-based retention policy support. So you can uh, store data for a specified interval, so it's essentially write-only for that particular time period. And after the retention period is expired, blobs can be deleted, but they can't be overwritten. So, And then you have this legal hold policy support, so that's kind of like if you don't have a interval that, you know, it's not known, you can manage it yourself by setting a legal hold to set that immutability until the hold is cleared. And when it's set, blobs can be created in red but not modified, or deleted, and uh, you can use tags to, to set those things. So it's pretty cool, and it's very easy. And I just did a um, a sample demo to... to um, you know, prove that it works as advertised, and it works great. And you basically nice. try to update a blob or delete a blob, and it says, "No, that would violate a policy." Sorry, exception. And
1: yeah, I love the idea that even after the pol- the hold is done, you can never modify it. You can only delete it, right? So it yeah. just stays. Because why would you ever modify it? It's it's some source of truth, whatever that may be.
0: That's right. You can't modify it. You just add another right. one. You say, this yeah, one updates well that it's, one.
1: It, you know, that's the, the insert only or the journaling method. Yep. Cool. Very cool. Nice
0: one. Yep. So that's what I got. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off a show
1: 1241, which we did with one Jimmy Bogart back in January of 2016, mm-hmm. where we we're talking about mature open source, source projects. Because let's face it, Jimmy is a mature open source project. He's
0: probably the most mature. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: and it could, this is three years ago, so... Uh, the comment is also three years ago. It's from Brendan Parker, who says, as you guys discussed, I think the best contributor to an open source project is someone who is actively using the project. Yeah. My typical pattern when needing a new feature from an open source project, typically one in GitHub, is to check other people's forks out there to see if anyone else has added a similar feature. Right. If no such code exists, I'll fork the project, add my feature, and then add a pull request to the main repo. In my code, I'll reference my fork. This allows me to go about my business of leveraging the original source with my added feature. I don't Mm. have to put my project on hold while I sit around and wait for the maintainer to even acknowledge my pull request Mm -hmm. or go back and forth reviewing code and making adjustments to meet the maintainer's requirements, which I'm not against. It's just that I want to go fast. In the end, it makes no difference to me if the pull request is denied or rejected, if it is sensible and desirable feature and the maintainer can add it and I can remove my reference to the fork and point back to the main repo. Mm. However, the maintainer doesn't want it Others are free to use my fork, which and this is an interesting just conversation around the culture of open source, where you can go in different directions. And to my only concern with Brendan's approach here is what happens if the version that's adopted that goes into the PR of the main branch isn't quite the same as his own? Is he going to be stuck on his own fork and lose out on all the all the other contributions, yeah. or is he going to make the adaptation to go back to that uh, primary version? Right. But uh, it is interesting just to think in terms of leaving forks out there because people may value those variations. And he goes on to say, finally, another thought that came to mind when listening to this, documentation is often source-controlled, either in a separate repo or right in the main repo, and a good way to contribute to projects where you might not be technically up to speed yet is to contribute to the documentation.
0: Right, absolutely. Which,
1: And I think the most powerful force on this one is At that moment, while you're learning a project, before you fully understand it, you arguably can write the best documentation because you still remember not understanding it. So your method of learning it and explaining it, if you can capture that, you can write docs that people who know the project can't write because they forget what they don't know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really powerful contribution and also a great way to learn a project.
0: Yep.
2: Yep.
1: Great. So, Brendan, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Beast to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Beast to Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or via any social media. We publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of to Code by.
0: And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin, he's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet because, you know, tweets are forever. <laughs>
1: I just thought GitHub was forever, but
0: diamonds I mean, were no. originally forever, and GitHub <laughs> is forever, and so are tweets. Actually,
1: yeah, you can delete them, but you can't modify them.
0: <laughs> that's right. You can delete tweets. I never do that. I think that's kind of like and you know, it, oops, it I just didn't mean says to say in there that. Too,
1: this tweet has been deleted.
0: Yeah, that's right. Come on, <laughs> so. really? All right. So let's bring back Jimmy Bogard. He is the chief architect at Headspring a software consultancy based out of Austin, Texas, where he tries not to melt eight months out of the year. He is an author, blogger, speaker, and creator of several open-source libraries, including Automapper and Mediator. That's M-E-D-I-A-T-R.
2: Welcome back, Jimmy. Good to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. I, um, I, I got to talking to you in the last place we were in this world, and uh, in uh, Minnesota, I think it was, and Yeah, it was. And um, talking about messaging and sort of pitfalls and things, and I thought it would make a great show, especially because I'm up to my eyeballs in messaging right now. So I have a personal vested interest in sort of picking your brain and trying to figure out what, a, what the messaging pitfalls are. We, we did this epic show with Clemens Vasters on, you know, sort of breaking down all the Azure products that have to do with messaging.
2: Oh, Lord, that would have been a long, long episode.
0: <laughs> it was a long episode, but it was so necessary because, you know, you hear about these things and they all sound the same, event hub, event grid, uh, service boss, uh, you know, nobody really knows the I, difference. I also
1: appreciated the history of that. It's that they didn't set out to make all these products. It's like, first they made this one and then it, it solved this problem, but it caused that problem. So then it made another one and it fixed that problem, but it caused this new problem. Like, it just felt like the the mortality of software, right? That we we just keep on building solutions and are presented with new classes of problem each time.
0: Right. And basically, that that was our assumption going in, that these were all sort of different teams overlapping, you know, uh, work. And which one do you pick? You know, it's kind of like a tribe, but that's not the case. He laid out, you know, the specific uses for why these, or there's reasons for why these things came into existence. So, so I appreciate that, and if we we would encourage everybody before you listen to this show to go back and listen to Clemens' show, and we will put the link in the show notes for that. But where do we start with messaging pitfalls? I mean, I guess I first have to ask: Do you need it? Do you need a a messaging layer in between your front end and your back end, or uh, your multiple microservices?
2: Um. I mean, for a lot of the systems we work with, no, because you think kind of the, the normal traditional applications, those are just your, I've got a web app on a database. Yeah. So, you know, I just hit the button, it updates something in the database and we call it a day. Mm. Um, it's my first real interaction with messaging was when I had a system that there was no user interface. It was just like file processing all over the place. Um, we were getting... Um, Files from uh, the front end system, files from the back end uh, mainframe system, and we were sort of the intermediary between those two, with all the all the brains of being able to do something. And this was a this is a loyalty reward system. So think things like Best Buy rewards or things like that. You know, mm. you give them your email address, your address, and in exchange for points. They um, they then know all the history of everything you've ever bought ever. <laughs> Bit of a trade off,
0: right? So you have these long running services that you know things are going to take a while. We need uh, things to queue up and then we'll let you know when things are done, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. And this system started off not doing any kind of messaging whatsoever. Although I, you, I guess kind of think of those flat files as kind of message, but hmm. um, it started off as just a, a ton of batch jobs, cron jobs using hmm, windows right. task as, to wake up, see if there were any files to process, process them and then go back to sleep. And, we we saw this and we were looking at you know I'm getting close to a hundred different cron jobs. They're all waking up at various times of the day and trying to figure out this. You know, there's got to be a better way for us to do this because managing the schedules of all these things and uh, trying to scale them out, especially, uh, was really really difficult. And so that was my really my first really big foray into building a messaging uh, messaging based backend. So we were trying to eventually get to was one that was a lot more reactive to uh, notifications and things that were coming into our system, and also being able to separate the the sort of parsing of a file versus the work of the file, because we'd have things like a hundred thousand line file drop on us, and you know just the, the dumbest thing that could possibly work—a for loop for each line, do the work. Right. <laughs> but if I get to line nine hundred ninety nine thousand. Um, if something fails, we'd have to process the entire file all over again. So
0: just right, right. You know,
2: little things like that. Like, how can we improve the overall throughput and the overall uh, reliability of the system? Um, and so that was my really first big introduction. Everything up until that point was really just you know web apps with a database.
0: I guess that's a really good uh, use case for the the idea that sometimes a queue just isn't enough. Right? You need to be able to manage things in and out of that queue. Right. I mean, messaging is basically, you know, queuing is basically messaging. But when do you need all the extra features that, you know, the service bus has and, and all that other stuff that a queue just doesn't?
2: Yeah. So the, one of the first things that we hit was um, I, wa- I want to try to break up the work into individual sort of discrete units of work. So looking at a file, we would say, well, instead of it just processing the whole file Every single time you run this job, Mm. can I break that up and say each, you know, each set of work to do is, is that one message to say, let's go send this off to some kind of processor to actually take, take that set of work and then do something with it. Right. So that you really separated the, the, like the munging of the file with the real business logic that happened dealing with that file.
0: Mm.
2: It's like, everyone's okay, great. Let's do that thing. And the very next thing you run into is, okay, so, you know, where do we put the work? How do we know if the work is done or not? Um, how do we manage you know, each individual set of work? How do we scale that out? Hmm. So the simplest thing that could possibly work is to use my favorite old friend, uh, SQL Book Copy, um, which is an amazing tool. I don't know if either of you have ever used that. Oh, sure. Right.
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. Just,
2: just barf the file into the database as fast as possible. Hmm. Like 100,000 lines might take two seconds, just ridiculous. Hmm. And yep. on top of that, we'd have... That uh, last little column in that table with all the stuff we pushed in within, with a flag that just says, is processed. Right. So our, our database became our very first queue. Sure. Um, <laughs> it turns out databases make for really lousy queues. <laughs>
1: it, it strikes <laughs> me that what you were describing of that file was that it was a kind of queue, too. It had a bunch of things that needed to be done in it, and you just pick it up and put it in, in the database so that you can process it a little better.
2: Yeah, exactly. We 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 saw that as um, in our case it was flat files, so just delimited files. Mm, but it could right. have been XML as well, where you know we have an array of XML elements and we we deal with them like that. But it was uh, it was a list of messages delivered to us in um, a zip file that we pulled off an FTP server that was secured on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just <laughs> it was just a really lousy queue, and then we stuck it in the database, um, which also turns out to be pretty lousy for queuing mm-hmm. um if you if i'm just like we we'd have some other job that was just looping over you know every five seconds right pinging a table to see do i have any records right. with is processed is false and then go do something with them
0: yeah right yeah not the best
2: no not <laughs> not the best
1: but it worked you were you were creating your own queue solution
2: yeah that lasted about two weeks <laughs> I guess. <laughs> okay, now this is, you know, we did some more research and said, you know what, this is this is much better for a queuing system. This is about 10 years ago too. So sure. things like Azure Service Bus didn't exist or anything like that in Azure. Um, even things like RabbitMQ weren't really a thing. Mm. Um, I actually don't know if that's true or not, but it wasn't a thing for us at that time. So said, what is a thing that allows us to deal with each of these sets of work, one piece of individual work at a time, And then us being on uh, Windows, uh, we saw that MSMQ, the built-in queuing system for Windows, was that that very natural fit to say, let's break these pieces into bits of work, send that message onto the queue, and then have something on the other side receiving that message and doing the discrete set of work. Mm. And then we tried to use the API for MSMQ. And (laughs) it's... Just a just pretty awful. Um, like it exists in a, as a thing in .NET, but it's a wrapper on top of, I, I don't even know, underneath the covers. Well, so that's
1: when we it, really... <laughs> I can roll out a little history for you if you like.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would love to hear it.
1: Uh, My, Microsoft's MSMQ is an implementation of IBM's uh, MQ Series MQ product series, right. from like the 80s. Yeah, and it was built directly against Windows, so the dot the .NET wrapper is a wrapper over COM calls down to the Win32 man. Like it's exactly the ugly API you think it is.
0: That hurts my ears. Ouch! <laughs> well, <laughs> make the Batman stop a
2: whole lot, actually.
1: <laughs> well, and I'll include a link to the docs about message queuing. But even the docs say don't do this. <laughs> like, hmm. they, they they stopped talking about it around 2012 r2 for a reason like they're gonna they're not gonna break anybody but you know you know a product's old when it has a separate section on comm support
0: hmm. <laughs> right right yep yep registry cleaning oh man so do you think i, I kind of get the feeling that uh, these messaging systems like service bus or whatever are meant to sort of alleviate the bottlenecks that can occur when you have a really, really high use uh, system, you know, millions of users, lots and lots of transactions and messages flying around and you need to be able to manage those and scale them. Is thats is that pretty much, do you think, why most people would look towards a service bus? I, I know that your use case is a little bit different
2: than that, but... Yeah, I mean, for us, it, it was... Um... Uh, for the, I guess the other times that I've, that I've, I've used something similar is are those cases where, you know, we insert a row into a database and have that is processed flag. Mm. So in this case, we, you know, we moved very quickly to MSMQ, but then I look back and so the other systems have built and thinking, you know what, we, we actually did have a queue in those systems. It was just you know, a poorly implemented one on top of a database where mm. we have this, right. this flag that said, was it processed or not? Uh, in fact, I mean, most of the, most of the, the e-commerce systems that use today you have some kind of queuing system so that when you place an order, it's not it's not literally processing order when you click the button. There's yeah. some kind of signal to a back-end processing system that takes that and runs from there. So one of my first jobs was on a cart checkout order processing team, where at the time we uh we weren't using a queue, but we were using a kind of a poor man's queue, which was you know, insert a row into the database with an is process flag and a, a back end window service that just polled every second to see where their orders that didn't be processed and then take them and push them through the order processing system.
0: And then were you polling in JavaScript to see when, you know, the user can get the, hey, congratulations message, everything's good, or did you send them an email or what did you do?
2: Um, so in that case, we we did something uh well, there's a specific name for this pattern. So I'll just name the pattern. It's called the claim check pattern. And the general idea is that, you know, you, when you're going to um, you're going to something like a doctor's office or um, filling out some insurance information, you go to the front window um, and they have you fill out a form. So you fill out the form and then you hand the form to the person. And they do a quick check to make sure that you filled out all the fields and then they hand you a ticket. Like, okay, now please sit down. So in our e-commerce website, that's what we did. You hit submit. We're just checking to make sure that you filled out the fields. Right. But I don't really care if I, you know, if it was a cat's walking on your lap on your keyboard or not, this doesn't matter. Just have you filled out the fields. And then I give you a little token back that says, Great, I've received your order. Here is a number. Um, here's a here's a ticket to say this is how you can get back my order. So you get redirected to a page that says, Thank you for your order. Your order status is pending. And that was it. Right. You just <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then everything else from there on out is just email right or like are there, are there kind of asynchronous notifications it says right and, well, and, the you, and you see this there's in
1: modern e- e- e-commerce systems now too it's like hey thanks for your order this is what we saw that you ordered yeah they haven't done anything yet and then you get another email when it's been processed and another email when they've been able to do the payment and, and the another ship. email when they actually ship it and right. I love that yeah I do too it's, yeah. you feel like you're working your way through a queue now
2: there's a That works really well if you don't have to inform the user or get user feedback immediately in case something goes wrong. So for something like I was working for a computer manufacturer here, and if they ran out of computers, they would just make more of them and send them along. (laughs) But that's not always the case. There's a whole other section of their website, which was for refurbished computers. And so you could have the problem that two people at the very same time click the button to add that thing to the cart and go to checkout. And try to purchase the same physical item. So hmm, we could right. have this problem where we couldn't just, you know, make another it computer. It's like, no, these, there's a real physical, um, good that they can't, yeah, I can't sell to two, two people. Right. Um, and so you see then other UX patterns start to show up. So things like, uh, ticket reservation systems. So when I'm buying a movie ticket, there's that little timer countdown, like the most stressful, <laughs> Part of any website is like you have two minutes to fill this out. You're like, oh right, my god, I know. <laughs> let's make sure I, know. I fill this in. And it's doing it is doing these kinds of like uh, polling or pinging the backend. That you know when I um, I don't want to sell this uh, this seat in the theater to someone whose credit card isn't working. Right. So I really need to, or or there, it's it's been flagged for fraud or whatever. So when I sell it, I actually do need to have a backend system that is doing the stuff and have some way of of notifying the front end. That this overall workflow process is complete or not, right? So that gets into a whole bunch of UX patterns to be able to do so. Like um, one, one you mentioned was you know being able to to, to ping from the front end, mm-hmm. but now you have technologies like WebSockets and SignalR, so you can right. directly from the back end notify the front end.
0: And if you're um, if you're trying to scale up to begin with, you know that has challenges of its own, right?
2: Oh, exactly. So I think of things like uh, TurboTax um so federal tax uh at least in the states is the thing we have to do um to fill out our taxes every year and uh you're going through and filling out all your information and then you could do the very end it's like okay go ahead and submit my my tax form and they put this really pretty animated gif that's like uh checking for deductions seeing if you're going to get audited doing this address verification checking this checking that and if you right-click that, it's just a static GIF. Like, it's not actually doing any of these things.
0: Like, it, <laughs> That's terrible.
1: You checked. Oh, you looked. You know it's just an oh, animation. I was like,
2: oh, how did they build the system? Like, oh, you know, I, I checked behind didn't. the curtain.
1: It's just a giant lie.
2: <laughs> it's, it's all a lie. I mean, It's like the, you know, the, the, the old story of people complaining about the elevator being slow. And so they just installed right. a mirror and now no more complaints.
0: <laughs> ah, yeah it's, it's just, great yeah.
1: Uh, my, my favorite variation on this i can't remember what airport i think it might have been cleveland airport where people were complaining that bags took too long to come off and right. and the answer was to make the corridor to the baggage claim longer longer yeah so because <laughs> as, as long as you're still walking you don't care right and so by making the corridor long enough that by the time you get there the bags have already come off that's fine didn't actually improve the speed of baggage handling, just kept people walking.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, actually that does uh, that does bring up the first really big pitfall that I see folks run into is that if I have a synchronous action with interaction with the end user, but that's going to generate some kind of asynchronous action in the back end via messaging, is right. to not lie to the user about this thing that's happening. So something like Amazon... When you click place order, it's very explicit that this order is pending. Or if you go to an airline reservation, you click order, um, you click you know purchase ticket. You don't say your ticket is, it doesn't say your ticket is, is issued. It says ticket is right. pending. Mm, so they're yes. being very explicit mm. that this is a small, synchronous interaction that's kicking off a larger back end interaction. But what we've given you is a little breadcrumb to say, how can I check the status of my order? Yeah. So as long as you're very explicit about designing that interaction up front. Sure.
1: But I also think these are I like that these are business conversation too of how we communicate with our customer. Oh, absolutely. Right? So there's this sense of <laughs> Yeah. Well, cuz you know, airline tickets, every time you check a flight, they're not actually seeing if there's tickets free or not, right? They're just giving you the flights because it's too slow to actually check for the tickets. It's only when you cuz most people look but they don't buy.
2: Oh yeah, it's it's, it's mainframe's all the way down. It's right? only
1: when you actually buy that they go check to see if you got a ticket.
2: So you have to to deal with this messiness. But I think
1: it's cheaper to disappoint a few people once in a while with a sorry, we don't have that ticket, than it is to, uh, to try- check every time.
2: So then it becomes a business discussion about yeah. you know, we can't do everything in the context of a single button click. So how do we deal with the messiness of the real world? And then the answer is usually, well, there's some kind of business rule or policy in place. Hmm. Yeah. You know, Here's a $50 gift voucher or something like that. Says so, sorry. Something. Didn't work.
1: <laughs> At least a sorry, right? Like I I think about your scenario with two guys trying to buy the same computer and one of them's going to get the message says I'm sorry the computer's gone.
2: So, it all has to come back up to the to that user experience to make sure that we we are being honest with the end user about what's going on and then picking right. the appropriate pattern based on based on that. Uh, so in the case of it's like a finite thing then that's why these places now have a little count on timer saying what we're doing mm-hmm. is we're reserving this for you, but you only have X amount of time to be able to actually purchase it yeah. because we have this whole backend system that has to process it. Or if right. it's an infinite resource, then we'll just make more of the thing. Um, and that's sure. really the backend system that's doing the order processing, but you can submit orders all day long.
1: Yeah. It's just the delivery date might be different than you hoped because you're further down the pipeline than you realized. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Hey guys, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine learning-driven alerts. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today. And Datadog will send you a free T-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. And we're back. It's .dotnet rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Jimmy Bogard. We're talking about messaging pitfalls and uh, use cases, and when to use what and why. And this is all fascinating stuff. I'm 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 thinking about uh, service bus in particular. I imagine I know you have experience with that, right? Oh yeah. Um. Demystify the dead letter queue for us. What, what do people misuse that for? And I said that specifically, misuse.
2: Yes. Um, so the dead letter queue is a place where messages that can't be delivered or processed go to be held until someone can make a decision about them, usually an administrator or something like that. So if you imagine I've, if I've moved all my work offline and all my work is now represented, represented with individual messages... What happens when something goes wrong with one of those messages? Uh, let's say there's, you know, there's some error processing it, there was a, a bug in the code, mm. or there's something, something awry that caused us to not be able to process that message.
0: Message came out of order. Is, you were expecting this one before that one, and you got that one before this one.
2: Exactly, something too. went wrong, and now you have to make a decision. Now, the great thing is that because the work you're trying to do is now written down in a message, then I can then have some kind of policy that says what to do when those things go wrong. Right. Which is different than like a web app, right? If, if you click the button, submit order button in, one, in a web app mm. and you get that ASP.NET yellow screen of death. That's it. You're probably not feeling good about things, right? <laughs> yeah, <that's>, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I just gave you my credit card. I'm going to go now call my bank to make sure you didn't screw me over here. Mm. Um, but now if that, if that work to be done is in a message, now it's, it's written down, it's durable. In a queue, then I can decide what to do from there. But what happens when things go wrong? Well, it's written down, so you could just say, "Let's let's try to do that work again." Mm. Um, so a lot of systems had this kind of built-in uh, retryability, and Azure Service Bus has this as well. Is if something goes wrong, go ahead and keep trying to deliver this thing. Uh, but we we can't do that forever. If you do that forever, then my processing would be stuck on this one poison message that prevents. Any other messages from uh, getting run,
0: and there there really isn't any kind of retry stuff like Polly has. It just goes boom, 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 and retries it a number of times, right?
2: Um, It's got some basic stuff built in, but it is Azure Service Bus is extensible. That you can you can have a a very complex retry if you want to have exponential backoff with random jitter built in to make sure that if I have contention of a resource that there's some some spacing. it, It could be extended however you want. But it is something you have to decide. Like, right. It's like when you create these, these queues, you have to decide, well, how many times should I actually retry this? Um, sometimes the answer may be don't retry it. Um, so that is one of the other pitfalls that we have is, you know, once everything's able to be written down in a message, then everything can be retried. So we should make sure that the work being done can actually be retried. So if my <laughs> order, if my queue is connected to, stripe to do payment processing probably make sure that i don't charge the customer twice
1: yeah that that would be f- bad but sometimes stripe is down i mean there's a reason to retry
2: exactly so in those cases we want to be able to re- be retried but we don't want to retry forever and so that's really where the dead letter queue comes into play because this work is written down in a message i can now say okay now that we've tried this x many times let's give up and then now uh move that over to a dead letter queue.
1: Yeah, but you definitely want that exponential effect. I've seen someone say, "We'll retry five times. It's like, well, you retried five times in 20 milliseconds. Is, yeah, do right. you feel better now? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, the right. exponential back off is much, you know, with a, with a total number, and then yeah. circuit breaker kicks in or something.
2: Yes, actually all of those things. Yeah. And we, we for some of the more complex systems, we wind up tuning that kind of configuration on a message by message basis. Wow. That is if if it is if my message coming in is to interact um, with some awful integration API, then when it's down, it's it's down. It's down hard, maybe for a day. Wow. That we'd say well well let's say if something goes wrong, try five times and then wait a day. So yeah. have have some means to like just put it to the side and then try again tomorrow because <laughs> it's not coming back up anytime soon.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. And that is all configurable in Azure. You don't have to write that code yourself?
2: Uh, so that's gonna be that's gonna be code that you well, in your consumption code, that's yeah, where you're so really writing. What I, did,
0: what I did was I used a I created a consumer for the dead letter queue itself. And so anytime something came into the dead letter queue, I got it, and then just implemented um, you know, the exponential back off in there. So is that what you mean by extensible, or is there something that you can do without having to write that code?
2: Well, you do have to write that code. It's somewhere. Yeah. There is a way to configure the retry policy inside of the Azure Service Bus client. So the piece that's actually consuming, um, depending on what your client is. Okay. So if you're using something like Azure Functions, they don't really right. expose that to you because it's just really meant to be a you know here's the blocker code that's consuming a message, and you know you don't want to get too much com- too much complicated after that. So you can, you can then, um, if you want more complex policies, then do exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, your goal is to not touch the system. Right. Because <laughs> if you have to go poke around queues to see what's going on, like, that's just not a good spot to be in. If you're digging around in App Insights, like, what happened here? Uh, it's just not a fun spot.
0: Yeah, that's why they exist to ameliorate that stuff. But I, you, you sort of hit it this,
1: Carl. And I think is really interesting. Is like, does it make more sense to retry multiple times on the primary queue, or if it fails once, throw it to the dead letter, and we have a separate service that just picks up the dead letters and works with them as the retry mechanism? That's what I do.
2: Mm-hmm. And, I, and it can get complicated. So we've had cases where what we'll do is um we get a message, and we'll have a policy of uh, doing an ex- exponential back off. Um, but sometimes we want to wait, just like, just, just wait yeah. an hour because it's, it's this, this, this consumer is pinging an API. Um, yeah. and so what we'll do is start to incorporate message headers. So we mm-hmm. can just, like, I look at it as like, you know, um, someone just mailed me something and something went wrong. So I just write a little note on top of the envelope that mm-hmm. says, try again tomorrow. And I put it aside. <laughs> That's cool. So, we, and so you got to do that. Just says, okay, um, when we wake it up, uh, our, our dead letter queue processing will just put that message back on the queue itself to let it go through the regular processing again. And then the error checking will then be looking at those headers to say, "How many times have I tried this thing? Oh, it's been five times in the last five days. Well, that's too many times. So let's just let's just go to our permanent failure queue." Right. So we wind up having kind of two levels of those: the the temporary dead letter where it's in a retry mode. And then the permanent work, which is a, I've given up. Just yeah. someone needs to look at this. This needs manual really intervention.
1: Over. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting to think about those as two stages. I'm going to kind of like getting out of the main pipeline if it fails the first time, especially if we've got like 99% success. So, you know, not having anything hanging around in the queue because it's grumpy. Just let the, the the working stuff work and handle the the occasionally failing stuff separately. But then you end up with two tiers: stuff you're still trying to make work, and stuff you have come to the conclusion isn't gonna work. Mm-hmm.
2: And one of the things that we had a hard time really um, conceptualizing was when we went to when we were building web apps. We did I didn't really think a lot about the 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 way IIS managed all the worker threads and requests coming in and I/O. It just you know. They just did its stuff and it managed the, it managed the, the work between passing requests to individual threads and and actually getting the request. When I'm developing in something like ASP.NET Core, I'm not really thinking about multiple requests coming at the same time. When I go to a queue, well, all the work is stacked up physically in the queue. It's not to really think about, okay, if it's something like order processing, there's an SLA. The user expects my order to be processed within usually 24 hours. And in fact, some of them actually stay on there like on the website you know your order will be processed within 24 hours or one hour whatever whatever might be
1: right so
2: now now that I've got all those works sitting in a backlog, I have to just really think about how I'm able to process the sets of work and if I have things like errors going on that's preventing the successes from happening. so then I have to look yes. at how do I break this work apart so that the good work goes through and the bad work is put off put to the side
1: yeah the troubled work stays isolated from the non troubled work Yep. but it, i mean this is another aspect of queuing that i've liked and even before the cloud we were doing this with queues where you could see if if the queue you know the correct number of items in a queue is always zero and as soon as the number's larger than that you're thinking do i have enough processing resources available so mm-hmm. we started playing with automated elasticity by monitoring the size of queues and if you saw a queue continuing to grow, you weren't keeping up with it, then it made sense to light up another instance of a processor to help drain the queue. You
2: you can actually see this at, at um, in real life, too. So one of the great things I love about messaging systems is there's there's so many real-world metaphors. Yeah. yeah. So if you've ever gone to a department store that has a single queue for all the registers, mm-hmm. right. when that queue gets back up, you hear someone over, over a little megaphone, we need another, you know." Tanya, come to aisle four for you know to, yep. <laughs> to open up a new register. So to open up a new processor to get the people through that line.
1: Yeah, to drain it. It is it is literally the physical manifestation of a queue. I, I liked doing these drawings for business people too, because you could talk through the different steps of an order and talk about the business rules for each one of them. Of what do we do about this? And what do we do about this? And you know, what are the what are the policy decisions of each one of these things? Sure.
2: So one of my other first big mistakes I did was when I worked through that set of stuff. I, as a developer, didn't really want to have to deal with a lot of queues. So the <laughs> I did the stupidest thing that could possibly work, um, which is, is you should actually check to see how stupid it is sometimes. <laughs> but <laughs> I put every message in a single queue. Um, oh, no, no, oh, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know, oh, no! I know. Like
2: Obviously, that's dumb. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but you know, when I'm developing locally, everything, the mm-hmm. queue was always empty because I was just right. hitting F5 and it went through fast. But then when yeah. we dumped, you know, files with 100,000 messages, then things backed up a little bit. Right. And when I put all the message for, messages from all the files into one queue, then <laughs> it exceeded the 24-hour period before the tomorrow's files came in. So that was, right. a, that was a fun little uh-oh on my part. Yeah, nice.
1: <laughs> well, and, and these it's not like queues really cost anything per se, right? I mean, they really are logical constructs.
2: No, the queues aren't, but the code or, or the constructs I write to consume the queues right. were. Mm-hmm. The so in our case, too. I would have to develop another Windows service to be able to pull things off another queue. Right. Um, and I just didn't want to do that. I was just like, wow, this other thing I have to deploy and maintain and manage. Can I just have one thing that comes in and that's the traffic manager of all these different processing?
1: Mm, right. um, the do everything service.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so don't do that.
1: <laughs> no. Well, and it's, this is a granularity game too, right? That I can launch more machines, more VMs or whatever the packaging solution is so that I can spread the workload. This is how you scale, right? It is that granularity.
2: And then you start to have different cues for different SLAs that you expect because really it's the workers right. that is your, your lever to say I can have more consumers of this message on this queue, but I can't really look at the messages on the queue and say, Oh, you're a special message. Let me go pluck you out because you're special. Uh, <laughs> and I think of this, you know, I fly a lot and uh, that's exactly what the airlines have designed. You have different cues yeah. for different priorities. We don't stick everybody in one queue and say, Oh, you're a, Triple platinum member. Let me go get you out of the middle of that queue, and you go up front because you know, everyone gives you dirty looks, things like that. And instead, they have you know here's group one, here's group two, here's group three, group four, and everyone has their own different queues to be able to to say you know which priority uh, set of folks get to be boarded first.
1: Right, and you have an authentication strategy to make sure the right message is in the right queue.
2: Well, in the case of the states, I pay fifty dollars and get to the head of the line through the TSA pre check. Yeah. Um, I guess it's not really an analog for regular messaging, but you, you have different queues for different SLAs, right? And yeah. really, your 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 cue design is really about the work, really understanding right. the work to be done, and the SLA is associated with that.
0: Do you, have you noticed that the the TSA pre line sometimes is longer now than the regular line? Absolutely, because everybody's. I got to make it. a
2: choice: like premium yeah. passenger line or pre check line. Do I want to take off my Do shoes? Do I want to take off my not? shoes? That's it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, versus speed through the line, like which one actually goes faster? Yeah. The real problem here is they don't have a test for pre-check because if you, there's an awful lot of incumbency happening in pre-check, what? Like, that's what slows it down.
2: Like, have you been through this line before, sir? Well, you know, here's a here's here's a practice line. They say
0: you don't yeah. have to take off your shoes and everything, but people leave their belts on and they you know the things that set the metal detector off, and then they got to go back through. It's like, right. no, you do actually have to take off your belt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were talking about Azure Service Bus. Did you mention N-Service Bus? Because I know you use that as well as sort of a modern .NET service bus.
2: Yeah. So there's a nomenclature, I'd say, problem with this is you have things like Azure Service Bus, you have N-Service Bus, but you also have other enterprise service buses on the market, ESBs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so nice. those all share that same term. Now, uh, in-service bus was Different. really a reaction to the ESBs of the world because it right. tried to promote this concept of smart endpoints, dumb pipes. The idea that I want to put my business logic in my queuing system, I really want my business logic in the things consuming the messages so that I have the most flexibility and control over how I actually process these messages mm-hmm. and not have that code inside of there. So at this point, I don't know, I, I There, it really bleeds the lines, um, or blurs the lines. Yes, blurs the lines uh, between these different kinds of tools. But something like in Service Bus, uh, we've used that for, I've I've used it for about ten years or so now, um, because the very next thing I had to do when building a uh, message consumer, which was, okay, how do I pull this thing off the queue and how do I process it, and the most of the messaging libraries out there, that is the the raw libraries to communicate with the transports. Is like when you want to say, pull a queue and pull the message off and do something, they're really low level. So the thing you get off the queue is uh, just um, some kind of object that contains the headers and contains the body. And the body is just a byte array. And that's it. Right. And so then you have to decide, okay, now I got to deserialize this into something and hopefully deserializes it correctly. And then you have to pass that to some kind of processing logic to be able to process it. Oh, but then you have to worry about something going wrong. So have some kind of retry policy. So for us, we use in-service bus because it implements all of the main messaging patterns for us. That is, uh, all the kind of communication patterns you'd expect in any kind of messaging system and encapsulates them in such a way so that we just deal with those higher level primitives and it's encapsulated all of the inner workings of the transports behind the scenes. Nice. So something like Azure, Azure Service Bus is really going the, is really starting from the, the, the raw and then moving up towards uh, having a lot more useful client functionality. So you don't have to, de- you don't have to manually deserialize something from JSON, for example, with Azure Service Bus. You can just say, "Yep, I know this is a this is one of these things," and it will deserialize that um, from JSON into just some kind of uh, DTO or, or class for you behind the scenes. Right. So, just it can do that for you automatically.
1: Cool. I, I guess the other aspect is whether or not you're using cloud.
2: Yes. So we, being a consulting, um, I deal with just a, a large array of clients who are in just really varied stages of of cloud adoptancy. So I've got some. That are like, can you help us with our mainframe? Because our workforce is retiring within the next three years and we kind of need to do something about it, all the yeah. way out to we're cloud native. Um, you know, we don't have any servers whatsoever. This don't, you know, don't we not have, we don't have VMs, it's all native platform as a service things we were building on top of Azure AWS. So having to deal with all those, we we also use in service bus as a way to say, um, we want to have a common library and primitive that we work with. And then that tool can then work with the different transports available, whether it's MSMQ or RabbitMQ or Azure Service Bus or whatever the next one might be, that we don't have to keep relearning all these different clients, that there's kind of like just a common. Nomenclature interface that we can deal with.
1: Are you running into customers that want multiple cloud solutions? Like we don't trust Azure, we want Amazon as well. Like I, I mean, I talked to folks that want that every so often. I just don't know if anybody's really spending the money.
2: Oh, that's a separate question. There's plenty of people that want it. Um, there's yes. fewer that have the have the resources to be able to actually support that.
1: Like everybody wanted 100 uptime until I gave them the bill for it. Then 99 is right. fine.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I used to run into this with product companies that say we want to support SQL Server and Oracle. Like, do you have any idea how different those two yeah, things right, are?
1: Sure, you just raise so the price dramatically. We do you
2: have right. that case? Um, but for for us, we really try to leverage the platform components and the cloud services we use. Yeah, because that's that's really you're leveraging the cloud to its full potential. So for those, we we try to move them into you know if. Well, first of all, just really understand the use case. Is there really a business reason why you're trying to do this, omni cloud solution? Yeah. Sometimes there is. Sometimes it's a uh, they're they're selling a they're selling a product and they want to reach as many customers as possible. And yeah. The reality is their customers have policies that say only Azure or only AWS. Right. So then you have to kind of dumb it down a little bit and go more for an infrastructure solution, that is, maybe VMs or maybe containers. To say, okay, well, we won't be able to leverage the, the the native things, but we can kind of dumb it down a bit mm-hmm. where it's more infrastructure as a service, VMs or containers, and then we'll just deploy it that way.
1: Yeah, I, and I think that's the only compelling argument I can imagine, really. The I don't trust that cloud or that cloud, I don't think it's a good enough answer. that Either one of those clouds is better than anything you've ever run. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I don't think it's a good enough answer, but that hasn't no. stopped. So.
1: doesn't stop it. In <laughs> the end, if they're going to pay you for it.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: It, uh, it is interesting to think in terms of that bus abstraction so that you can then just put a provider onto the issue's services. But that speaks to this. What is the overhead of all of this asynchronous queuing stuff? Like, Do you see an overall degradation in performance per transaction
2: from this? That's why we're really... I'd say really specific about when we want to put this kind of uh, put this kind of piece in place, because it mm-hmm. has to be some kind of compelling business argument. Because you're then you're going from running one system where everything is in process to now there's there's two systems, and even worse, you don't have a UI into the other system. It's just messages yeah. in the queue. Right. Um, so you, there's a and then there's that there's that dead letter queue. So I build systems assuming that any message I create can wind up in that dead letter queue. And so you have to make sure that there's someone that is able to respond to something being in there. like There has to be an administrator available. And how does that affect the end user? We don't want to. We don't want to have them at you know at a, in, a, in a screen where they're staring at that spinning GIF forever, right? Because they've never right. received that back end notification. So you have to have to design for it explicitly up front, and make sure that you have someone able to manage the back end uh, components as well.
1: And I appreciate your thinking that That means that each time you create a new message, you just created a to-do item that is manage that message in the dead letter queue.
2: There's an assumption, well, at least when you're building web apps, right? Yeah. If something goes wrong, you kind of shrug your shoulders. Eh, well, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's a a log message somewhere. Maybe there's an App Insights uh, uh, entry. But you can't do anything about it. Just Sorry. We'll monitor the errors. Yeah, somebody will look at it in six months. Close yeah. enough. <laughs> right. Now, with messaging, everything's written down. And i got to actually deal with the problem. So we've had cases where uh, before we put these kind of dead letter queue policies in place that, you know, we'd have this third-party API g- go down. And now we've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of messages in the air queue. Right. And we first hooked up the notifications up to our email. And now we've filled up our email inbox. Right. <laughs> <because we got laughs> <a> <laughs>
1: Yeah, you make that mistake exactly once.
2: You were
0: thinking this was going to yeah. be, how often could this possibly happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, that reminds me of that uh, story you told on .NET Rocks, oh, Richard, yeah, about the texts.
1: We, we first got <laughs> text messaging in the 90s, and we got an API so that I could automate sending a text message. And my first test trial, I set myself 32,767 text messages. <laughs> and uh that was an old nokia candy bar phone where you had to delete each text message one at a time
2: oh just throw it, throw it in the river just you're done
1: yeah
0: it's funny because that's the range of an unsigned integer so you probably had a counter that yeah f- eventually exactly. overflowed it
1: would have gone forever but it hit the overflow it Hit thing the overflow me. the fun part was calling tech support to try and fix it and nobody knew what i was talking about until <laughs> i got to the tier three guy and i like, explained what's oh, happening goes, oh it's you, you. Yeah, <laughs> i am looking at that.
0: <laughs> You're the guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna delete this for you. Don't do that again. <laughs> too funny. Yeah, great, great. But you know, this, all of these infrastructure, all of these architectures, they they are amplifiers of our mistakes too, yes. right? Like you just, it's hard to think through all the possible ramifications when we build this stuff.
2: You cannot escape your bugs. They're sitting there in that dead letter queue waiting for you to fix it.
0: Yes. Do you uh, talk about this at conferences? Are you going to be speaking about this stuff uh, anytime soon?
2: I did one a while ago. um, I haven't done it in a while, which uh, covers these kind of concepts because one of the mistakes I see people make is not having good metaphors in their head as they're moving to building these kinds of systems. So I had a talk at NDC a while ago that was around building up real world metaphors for these interactions and these patterns so that if you drew it on a whiteboard and imagine people being the communicators of these messages back and forth, could you step back and say, does this make sense or not? Will this actually work in the real world? And if it does, then you have a very strong likelihood of it succeeding in the systems that you build. But if you look at it and it's like, there's no way that any business could ever run like this with this kind of communication, then it probably won't work for electronic systems either.
0: Yeah. I I feel we're just scratching the surface too, because there must be so many gotchas that we're not even beginning to talk about. When you just talk about service bus and other things. Over the next
2: whiskey, we can talk about
0: it. <laughs> yeah. It does seem like most of the pitfalls are architectural, right? That if you, if you have somebody on the team that's been through this stuff before you can avoid, you can design away these sorts of problems without having to fill up your DLQ.
2: And it is one of those things that it just requires you to, to, to kind of go through it the first time, to go through those, those those battles, get the war wounds, and understand these these kind of things that you have to put in place. Because there's nothing that's just this shrink wrap solution that says, oh, yeah, just add Alma, add App Insights, and you're good to go. Right. It's, it's never that simple.
0: No, you can add App Insights, and then you say, hey, we're getting a denial of service attack. Oh, that was me. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Our own system is attacking us.
0: Right. <laughs> Well, Jimmy, thanks a lot. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thanks for having me. Catch up with you in Oslo, right?
2: That's right. I'll see you all then.
0: All right. Take care, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.